Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. I wanted to just give you a heads up that we're, we may start in about five minutes, so just hold tight. Mayor Pete is in the building. Awesome. Um, we're rustling him up some caffeine, and uh, so it'll just be another minute or two. So just hang tight, and we'll get started in just a few minutes. Thank you. Good evening. Hi, everybody. I'm back. <laughs> I'm Stesha Brandon. I'm the Literature and Humanities Program Manager here at the Seattle Public Library. And as we begin this evening, I would like to acknowledge that we are gathered together on the ancestral land of the Coast Salish people. We honor their elders, past and present, and thank them for their stewardship of this land. Welcome to this evening's event with Peter Buttigieg presented in partnership with Elliott Bay Book Company. Thank you to our author series sponsor, Gary Kunis, and to the Seattle Times for generous promotional support of library programs. Finally, we're grateful to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Private gifts to the foundation from thousands of donors help the library provide free programs and services that touch the lives of everyone in our community. So to library foundation donors here with us tonight, thank you very much for your support. Yeah, I think, yeah. So I have a few additional announcements, and I made some of these announcements at the top of the um, evening. So forgive me if you've heard it, but there's repeating. We have a limited number of assistive listening devices that are available for folks that might need those on this table here. If you'd like one, just raise your hand, and the staff person will bring it for you. I see you. I'll bring you one. I see you, I bring, bring you one. Oh, I think you have one. Oh, you need a new one, oh, perfect. We'll make that happen. Um, so we are recording tonight's program for the library podcast, and if you haven't done so already, please take a moment to silence your phones. And then if you'd like to listen again, you're able to look for tonight's podcast on the Seattle Public Library website in just a few weeks. I also wanted to remind you about the exits. Um, as you saw, the doors became walls, and so if you need to leave the program um, while it's happening, there is an exit to your right through the Children's Center, and then there's an exit past this piano um, that will go along the side of the auditorium. And um, I also wanted to remind you that the closing announcements will go off at 7.30 in about quarter to eight, I believe. I believe. And I'm sorry, unfortunately, those are automated. We're not able to turn them off. So those of you up in the um, overflow area will hear those. I apologize for that disruption. You all received a survey when you came in. This is an opportunity for you to make your voice heard. We're interested in knowing a little bit more about you and what you'd like to see here at the library. And after, you, uh, after the event, if you'd like to fill that out, you can return it to the basket that's here by this entrance. Um, and then finally, I wanted to mention uh, the library is going to close um, while the program is happening. And so those of you who didn't hear before, um, the, everybody in the program will need to exit through 4th Avenue. The 5th Avenue entrance will be closed at 8 p.m. So um, those of you up above will just take the escalator down to 4th Avenue to exit the building. So just want to give everybody a heads up about that. Tonight's program will include remarks by Mayor Buttigieg and then a conversation between the mayor and Florangela Davila 
followed by audience Q&A and then book signing. Elliott Bay Book Company have books available for purchase and the book signing is going to take place in the lobby, which is um, off of 4th Avenue there. So it's the thing right in front of uh, you um, on the other side of this wall. So um, those of you who want to get your book signed, you're welcome to uh, go through that exit when, when the wall becomes a door again, and you'll line up in the children's section. Those of you who are heading home, you'll exit through this door and just straight out through the lobby. Now, without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce tonight's program. Peter Buttigieg is currently serving his second term as mayor of South Bend, Indiana. A Rhodes Scholar and a Navy veteran, Buttigieg was educated at Harvard and Oxford, and in 2015, he received the New Frontier Award from the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation and the Harvard University Institute of Politics, and he earned the Joint Service Commendation Medal for his counterterrorism work during a seven-month deployment in Afghanistan in 2014, and that was while he was on leave from being mayor of South Bend. Buttigieg recently announced that he's running for president, and if elected, would be the first openly gay president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After his initial remarks, Buttigieg will be speaking tonight with Florangela Davila, the managing editor at Crosscut. A veteran journalist, Davila has worked for 14 years, worked for 14 years as a staff reporter at the Seattle Times. She's also been a longtime arts contributor to KNKX, as well as Crosscut. Her work has appeared on NPR and in Seattle Magazine. And Florangela is also a formal, former faculty member at the University of Washington. Prior to Crosscut, she served as the Voices of the Region Director for the Seattle nonprofit Forterra, where she launched Ampersand, the print magazine, and executive produced Ampersand Live. And I don't know this for sure, but I think she might be the genius behind the very cool and upcoming Crosscut Festival. Is that accurate? Sort of? No, she's shaking her head. She doesn't want to take credit. Anyway, totally. Tonight, they will be discussing Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge, and a Model for America's Future. Buttigieg's new book is personal and political, sharing his experiences as an Afghanistan veteran who came out and found love while in office, and sharing the hard work he undertook to re revitalize his Rust Belt city. I can't wait to learn more, so please help me welcome Mayor Peter Buttigieg. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you to the library for hosting us. I have to say, uh, having been to many cities and many libraries, uh, this facility and the activity that goes on here is really the envy of many a mayor and many a city. So congratulations on everything that you've achieved here. I think the, the sooner we get uh, into a dialogue with our moderator and then, then with all of you, the better, but uh, I was asked to sort of introduce uh, myself and introduce the book, and I always feel a bit strange talking about a book while it's, while it's here, so probably the best thing I can do is read a few very short uh, passages in succession to give you a sense uh, of some of the stories I'm trying to tell, and then we can engage uh, in a discussion and cover as much ground as possible. But uh, let me begin just by explaining why I wrote a book. The days of a mayor are pretty busy, and so uh, you're not looking to, to find things to fill them with, but I felt that this project was necessary long before it crossed my mind that I would be entering uh, a presidential political 
conversation in 2020. And one of the main reasons is that I felt that we were being sold a certain story about what goes on in the middle of the country, that communities, uh, and it doesn't just have to be Midwestern ones, but communities, whether they be rural or communities in industrial or post-industrial areas, areas are, are, are being pitched as though the way to our hearts is resentment, as though we can't handle change, uh, as though uh, we're supposed to always be looking for greatness in the past. But that wasn't our experience in South Bend. And so in telling my own story, I also wanted to tell South Bend's story and give a sense of how a community uh, that was up against a lot over the years could find its way to a better future. Um, so again, I'll, be, I'll give you just a, a handful of passages that are just a quick flavor of what we're up to. The first I wanted to do was just um, talk a little bit about uh, my generational account um, because I, I make it into the millennial generation by about three weeks, depending how you count. Um, and I thought I'd say a little bit about just what, uh, what I've noticed about um, being the age that I am. To be born in 1982 is to be just old enough to remember the Soviet Union and to have its fall be the first seismic geopolitical event of your lifetime. I remember the kid who dominated second grade show and tell with a little chunk of the Berlin Wall, gray and rough on one side but smooth and painted on the other a trophy from his father's business trip to Europe. And there was Miss Martin repeatedly explaining to us why our maps and globes with Union of Soviet Socialist Republics spread in impossibly stretched letters across the Siberian tundra were now obsolete. I'm young enough that I don't always use a TV set to watch television, but old enough that you might catch me using the phrase flat screen TV, as if they sell any other kind. Only now can I make sense of the way my grandparents' generation used to talk of color TV, long past the time when you could find a black and white TV for sale anywhere in America. From my freshman dorm room in late 2000, the most high-tech thing I did every morning was log on to South Bend's WNDU.com and look at the two-inch square, low-resolution still image from the webcam on their transmission tower, aimed at the Golden Dome, updated every few minutes. A grainy but comforting link to home. Websites didn't have much to them back then. I can see myself telling my grandchildren one day. But things moved quickly. By senior year, as I was banging out my thesis on an early model iBook, a few sophomores in another dorm were creating a website patterned after the Facebooks that Harvard passed out at the beginning of the year so that we could figure out who was who in the dining hall. I want to share a little bit, uh, speaking of Indiana, <clears throat> about something that I may or may not get asked about tonight, but uh, get asked about an awful lot, uh, which is my relationship with our governors. Um, on my third Republican governor, um, one of them became uh, well known as uh, the vice president. As you might imagine, I view the world a little bit differently than he does. Um, <clears throat> So you can read all about that. There's a whole chapter about that. I'll, I'll actually read the end of the chapter, uh, and, and you can read about all the adventures, um, <clears throat> because I, I just want to offer my assessment of how we got to where we are now. The fix, I'm talking about the fix to the so-called Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The fix was not exactly a leap forward in LGBT inclusion. 
An effort failed the next year to actually establish a civil rights policy, which meant going forward that in many parts of Indiana, people could still be fired for being gay. Embarrassingly, we also remained one of just five American states with no ban on hate crimes. But the whole episode showed that trying to appeal to radical social conservatives no longer worked in Indiana because it would run afoul of what most people believed, including typically conservative groups like the business community. The controversy crippled Pence's reputation as governor and created an opening for his Democratic challenger, John Gregg, to mount a credible campaign against him for the governor's office in 2016. What no one could have known then was the future benefit to Pence of establishing himself as a hero to the religious far right, a political martyr almost. It made him into a brilliant, if cynical, choice of running mate for Donald Trump. Nominating an evangelical heartland governor was the best way for a thrice-married, formerly pro-choice, philandering ex-Democrat like Trump to reach out to religious conservatives and begin unifying the fractured right around his candidacy. And while Trump's life story was anathema to everything Mike Pence believed in, this was the right move for Pence too, if viewed in the cynical light of raw politics. The governor had lost respect on both sides of the aisle in his home state and was now widely expected to lose his reelection. Strange bedfellows though they were, Mike Pence and Donald Trump needed each other. Win or lose, teaming up with Trump could give Pence a second political life. Another part of the book that probably the part I most enjoyed writing um, is uh, in addition to being something of a love letter to my hometown, the city of South Bend, it's also a bit of a love letter to Chaston, my husband, who's here somewhere, by the way. I lost track of him. There he is. Um, and uh, so really the, the best chapter is the one that's about him. Um, I don't want to spoil it, so you'll have to read it, but I want to tell you about this moment uh, that led me to him, which is me figuring out how to, uh, how to come out, and then something that was actually maybe even harder than coming out, which was um, dating. So here's part of why that was hard. I had come out of the closet in order to make it possible at last to create a meaningful personal life. I was already well into my 30s and hoping, as I've described, uh, to have a family someday. The politics were what they were. Now that I didn't have to worry about being spotted or outed, it was time to start dating. But how? How is a gay mayor or any mayor supposed to go about getting a date? The closer to home I looked, the harder it seemed. It could be an ethical minefield. A mayor in his own city can certainly get his calls returned, but there's also the risk that someone will completely misunderstand why you're inviting them to meet for a coffee at Chicory Cafe or a pint at Fiddler's Hearth. Farther afield, friends from college were willing and eager to introduce me to people they knew, but most of the eligible guys in question lived in New York or Washington. To most of them, I was lost in the expanse of flyover country, probably even more remote than if I were overseas. Since I wasn't moving anytime soon, I was going to have to think closer to home. But when it came to South Bend, it wasn't even clear where to look. I thought of the countless local doctors and business leaders of my parents' generation who had seemed intent over the years on fixing me up with their bright and lovely daughters. Where were these would-be matchmakers now? And how was it that not one of them had a son or a nephew they wanted me to meet? <laughs> my city had never felt so small. 
obviously, that part of the story has a happy ending. Um, let me just end with, with a bit from the last chapter, um, just a couple of paragraphs that, that kind of sum up what I was trying to say at the beginning, which is uh, what I think is at stake in the story of a community in the so-called Rust Belt that found a future uh, not by looking uh, to turn back the clock. Progress could begin only once the loss, by which I mean more than anything the loss of our factories, Progress could begin only once the loss had been fully metabolized. Nothing is more human than to resist loss, which is why cynical politicians can get pretty far by offering up the fantasy that a loss can be reversed rather than overcome the hard way. This is the deepest lie of our recent national politics, the core falsehood encoded in Make America Great Again. Beneath the impossible promises that coal alone will fuel our future, that a big wall can be built around our status quo, that climate change isn't even real, is the deeper fantasy that time itself can be reversed, all losses restored, and thus no new ways of life required. To defeat this temptation is to see what actually lies on the other side of acceptance, not diminished expectations, but still greater ones. For us, paradoxically, the only way to relive anything like our hometown's former greatness is to stop trying to retrieve it from our vanished past. The founders of car manufacturing here would scarcely recognize today's industry as their own, but it echoes their originality and audacity, showing that the less we concentrate on emulating our forebears, the more we begin to resemble them at their best. So again, hopefully that gives you a flavor for what I'm about, what I was trying to write about, but uh, at this point I think I'll invite our distinguished journalistic host to uh, Join in a conversation. There's a lot of people here. How's the book tour? How's the exploratory tour? <laughs> so, um, we have a whole bunch of How about now? How about now? Nope. How about now? Yeah. There we go. All right. Uh, it's fantastic. So, when, you, when, when you're not exactly extremely famous and you, you put your name forward for a conversation about the American presidency, you're not totally sure what will happen, if anybody will notice or if anybody will care. But I've got to say, it's been about a month now. Uh, and we have been in living rooms in Iowa and New Hampshire, and we've been in libraries from Cleveland to Brooklyn to Seattle, and uh, the response is incredibly encouraging. I just want to say that it's nice to meet somebody who has a more difficult name to pronounce than, than mine. Uh, I, can, I can relate to that. Buttigieg. That's right, yeah. Okay. Rolls off the tongue, just Rolls like it looks, right? <clears throat> Um, you should know that Seattle um, experienced a snowpocalypse or snowmageddon or snow something not too long ago, uh, which was a really nice um, th an anchor for me as I approached your book. Because here I was picking up a book written by a 37-year-old white gay man, Oxford, Harvard, educated, and a veteran, concert pianist, uh, Arabic speaker, somewhat. Um, I related to you in the fact that you have a dog, two dogs, I think. <laughs> uh, that was good, and I'm married, so that was go. good. 
Uh, I mean, those were the things in common. Um, but you, but you opened up the book, uh, and I knew I, I know nothing about Indiana. I've never visited. I'm from the West Coast. Um, Come see us. But you, um, you opened the book up with um, scenes and scenes of snow, mm. and what what it's like to be yeah. in a city. And I think you actually talked a little bit about running and like navigating the city, both looking yeah. at the city through windows and just you're a runner. Yes. And you take us a lot through the book about what that experience is like. Yeah. being so physically close to the ground and seeing all the different yeah. facets of the city. Yeah, in some ways that's the experience of every mayor because by, by definition, a mayor uh, inhabits the city, right? So you, 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 you eat what you cook from a policy perspective, but you also have to be close to the earth kind of metaphorically and literally. And I, I enjoyed writing a lot about snow in the first chapter because uh, snow is, uh, first of all, it's this great leveler. Everybody's got to deal with it. Uh, we get a lot of snow where we live. Um, but it's also the mortal enemy of mayors, right? Because one botched snowstorm is the end of your career as a mayor. We're, we're kind of familiar with that, but that's a different story. Our own, our own previous mayor. Or, anyways. Uh, Not touching that. <laughs> You're the, the only child, uh, the son of college professors. Yeah. Um, I also related to the fact that your uh, father was is an immigrant. Yeah. When did political action become a calling? Well, we were always a politically aware family, but we were never politically connected or even politically involved. So the table talk at dinner was always, my parents had their professors, professor friends there, and they were always talking about world affairs. What did they, what did they teach? Uh, English, English and social theory and art. Um, and, you know, whatever the news of the day was, was the hot topic at, at dinner. But I'm not sure I understood that it was possible for someone like me to, to really have a role or be part of it at first. My, my big aspiration as a kid was to be an astronaut. Um, and, but I think by the time I got to high school, I began to realize that, that, that public service could be a calling, that all these things that my, my parents and, and their friends analyzed at the highest levels and, and talked about and debated that, that I could actually maybe go do. And um, what I didn't realize, though, was, um, was that purpose, so much purpose for me would come at the local level. So, you know, by the time I got to college and I hung around the Institute of Politics that they have there, and um, there was a lot about national politics, a lot about global affairs, almost nothing about the local. And so it was only after I returned home that I realized that actually there was as much adventure and sophistication and complexity and excitement in, in the backyard politics and as much at stake philosophically in how we handled issues of equity and, and development and, uh, and race um, as there was in any of the national issues that got more attention in the national papers and, and on TV. But after Oxford, you took a kind of a fancy job. Yeah, you could say that. In yeah. consulting. Yeah. And something with grocery pricing. And yes, I became an expert on grocery pricing. Um, and actually, I write about how, to my great surprise, I wound up being a very intellectually formative uh, time because uh, I also learned a lot about data. Uh, you know, uh, I was doing math for a living uh, as a consultant and began to understand the complexity and the richness and the power and the pitfalls uh, of using data to make decisions, gathering data, and, and live, you know, weaving uh, possible futures out of data. You talk about uh, sort of that um, fork in the road of possibly continuing that. You could yeah. do that, live comfortably, or run for office. Right. And yeah. return home. 
and you felt that the management experience really did give you some formidable strength, formidable muscle that you could bring back home. Yeah, I think a lot of people face this choice. I certainly felt up until that point, every turn of my life was very much what you were supposed to do. And I had some powerful institutional brand name that, that spoke for me in a way. Harvard, Rhodes, United States Navy, McKinsey and Company. These are all things that, uh, you know, are these very powerful brand names. And they're these institutions that kind of take care of you in a way too. And so the hardest part was when I realized that I could make a difference at home, more of a difference at home, that it really would matter that it was me and not somebody else there. Um, and I realized that, that management consulting was not for me. I remember this moment where, I mean, I really found it interesting and stimulating, and I enjoyed, the, obviously, a, you know, a good paycheck, and, and, and I enjoyed my colleagues a lot. But I remember this moment. I was working on, I think it was on the grocery study. And um, I got up to get a cup of coffee, and I just suddenly thought to myself, I don't care. And... I mean, I cared about doing a good job for, for my boss and for the client, but I didn't fundamentally feel like it mattered to the world that, that this client do better than its competitors in the grocery space. And that was when I began to realize that I had to do something that was just intrinsically important, not because a client was paying me to care about it, but just because it mattered. And that was when I knew I had to leave the warm embrace of this institution that took care of me and go out on my own. When you returned to South Bend, what was the situation it was tough. Um, in 2011, right around the time I began running for mayor, um, there was a, a Newsweek article about 10 American dying cities. And I think we were number eight. Uh, we were a city that had never recovered from the departure of these auto factories in the 60s. So I, hadn't even, I wasn't even alive to see them in their heyday. And yet I grew up surrounded by these empty factories and empty houses. And which is why I got that idea growing up that success meant getting out, only to realize over time that, that I belonged at home. When you see a list like that, we, we get, we're on the other kind of list, the most expensive place right. to live list. The, uh, when you see that, and, and we bristle, yep. uh, when you saw your city on that list, what did you think? It hurt. I mean, and there were, there were a lot of these dumb lists that come up, and where they're good, I'll retweet them, and when they're bad, I'll talk about why their methodology sucks. But, um, <laughs> but that one, I mean, that, this wasn't like, you know, some clickbait thing. This was Newsweek, and they said we were dying. And the reason, if you read the article they said we were dying, was that our youth were leaving, and that people didn't see opportunity. And I think for us, it triggered this question of, not just like, is our town sleepy or not enough going on, but is this community that shaped us going to, die. And there were two ways to respond, right? One is to throw up your hands. The other is to say, okay, I got to be part of changing that. And by then I was already having conversations with, with a lot of people around how I might be part of that solution. Um, and, and the incredibly fulfilling thing about, about this, this now going on eight years I've had in, in government is we did. I mean, we didn't fix everything, but, um, but we really changed that trajectory of the city. And what I found was that actually this, this kind of counterculture project of really helping a community like ours turn around was so compelling that I was able to enlist other people, um, people I grew up with and, and convince them to come back. Um, people who'd never even been. We had a, uh, my 
policy director, is a Rhodes Scholar from Seattle, who I was able to get to, to come be part of South Bend's comeback, because it was a chance to shape something in a way that was going to impact so many people. Those of us who grew up there, and, and then people who, who were just um, attracted to that challenge. Can you tell, go a little bit more in detail about the, the transformation that you saw, and a little bit about, or the transformation that yeah. you helped... Yeah, so one thing we had to do right away was deal with these vacant and abandoned houses. There were so many that nobody could even tell me how many there were. And so we started counting. And we found that there was something like 1,300, but also that it was a contagion, that the longer they were there, the more there would be other um, vacant and abandoned houses, destroying the value of our neighborhoods. Um, this probably doesn't compute in Seattle, but um, we have a lot of houses that have become unaffordable because the price is too low. I know this sounds weird, but... Um, if a house, the value of a house falls below $40,000, which you can get actually a pretty good house in South Bend for that much. Um, but then it's impossible to get a loan on that because a bank won't get its financial transaction cost back. So we, we had to really tackle this. And what we did was we set a very aggressive goal after a year of analysis and very sophisticated uh, segmentation of the markets and the condition of the houses. I came out with this kind of almost childlike goal which was we're gonna do 1,000 houses in 1,000 days. And the reason we did it, and we put up a website where you could see how we were doing, you could tell when we fell behind. The reason we did it was I realized that what was missing more than anything was the, the political propulsion. So when I attached myself to that goal, it meant that my political future depended on achieving it. And for my team and for the administration and anybody in the community who wanted us to succeed, it created this extra forcing mechanism that when we weren't sure how we were going to get something done, we just had to come up with something uh, or else I would have been toast. And so I, I've used that approach in a lot of ways. This is, I talk a lot, and, and this is an idea um, first popularized, I think, by Martin O'Malley, who had a very um, performance-oriented approach to being mayor of Baltimore that leaders can, can add value by making themselves vulnerable. But part of how you make yourself vulnerable is through data. By publicizing the information about how you're doing, tracking toward a goal, so that if you're falling behind, everybody can see it. And it creates a new sense of urgency. You, you actually tell some really remarkable stories about putting yourself on the line and yeah. that kind of uh, data-driven approach. One thing that struck me too is when, when you're analyzing um, how to run a city, there's a moment when you also talk about the need for being merciful. Mm. And when you have, that there are rules, but sometimes there have to be exceptions to rules. Yeah. I, I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so a lot, I, I learned over time that a big part of how you earn your paycheck in office is not by handling technical questions that have a right or wrong answer, but moral questions where it's actually not obvious what to do. And so I have a, a chapter that's kind of a meditation on data. I really work to be a very data-oriented mayor and lead a very data-oriented administration. But there was the, the police shootings. Can you talk a little bit about that? In terms of uh, Yeah, how it's a great data... example. So uh, we started installing these, these acoustic devices that could hear a gunshot. And um, it's supposed to help tactically because you can deploy police right away before somebody even calls it in. Then we thought, you know, while we're at it, we should check what percentage of the time when somebody hears a gunshot do they call 911. Uh, we figured it would be like 90. It was like 20. And we started diagnosing it, and we found the problem was, you know, police project an air of omniscience. And so if somebody heard a gunshot and didn't see the police there right away, they didn't realize it was because we didn't know. 
they figured it was because we didn't care. They gave up. And then I realized I had something that was very hard to count right there on a dashboard for me, which is I can watch that number and find, treat it as a barometer of trust in the police. And it would actually be an indicator over time if that proportion went. It's a very grim statistic, right? I mean, we don't want to have any shootings at all. But if we can watch the number rise, the more often it happens, the more people think there's value in letting the police know, especially in minority neighborhoods where trust with the police is a major issue, then I just might be able to quantify how much people are trusting the police. And we started making that right alongside, you know, more traditional crime statistics, one of the things I asked the police to report to us on. Um, the reason mercy comes into play is that, so efficiency is all about creating rules and following those rules. Mercy is about breaking rules. Mercy can be, um, in many ways, the enemy of efficiency. Um, we have a physical place where you can pay your water bill. You can walk in and pay your water bill in cash. Uh, that drove me nuts as a management consultant. It's inefficient, you have people making change when all of this could be done online. And I kind of just wanted to get rid of it. Except, we have a lot of people who don't have access to online services. We have a lot of people who don't have access to banking. We have a lot of people who, um, this might be the, the only social contact they get sometimes is to go see the friendly person who takes your water bill payment. And so we decided to tolerate an inefficiency because there was a social good that came with it being there. And I think mercy is about understanding the exceptions to all these rules we're creating, even if it means we're being a little less efficient some of the time. I'd like to know a little bit more about South Bend in terms of the, what comes across in your book is sort of this, this honest, this optimistic approach in terms of your politics and your outlook um, and your performance. How do you navigate that and hold on to that without being affected and impacted when you have a diverse set of constituents? People who are so different than you are, a little bit like what you were talking about, people who don't have access to computers, yeah. who don't have who are completely different. How do you govern efficiently and effectively when people's needs may be so dramatically different? Well, there's a kind of a top-down answer and a bottom-up answer. The top-down answer is, is kind of the data picture. It's the utilitarian side of it. We created a 311 center, which is a campaign promise, not just because I wanted it to be easy to know who to call, but because we wanted the data. So that if it turns out we have this you know, outbreak of missed trash pickups in a certain neighborhood, we can spot it right away and deal with it. So when very different people have very different problems, we can, we can detect it across this kind of broad base. But again, this doesn't capture everything. In fact, this misses a lot. And so we have a lot of low-tech solutions too. One thing I do every month or two is we do a mayor's night out. I just go to a school or a neighborhood center, set up a card table, and anybody who wants to can get a short one-on-one -on -one appointment with me. And it's kind of exhausting. I'm also an introvert. I mean, not that I don't like people, but um, 28 back-to-back -back meetings um, really, really wears me down. But um, it teaches me so much about what's at stake. Because it's one thing to sit in a room and say, okay, we gotta change this thing for these people. It's one thing for me to say, as I did, you know, we'd be, we'd be better able to keep trash rates low 
if we change it around to where you bring your trash bin to the front so that our kind of robotic armed uh, trash truck can pick it up, uh, then to keep having it in the back where a human picker has to come and, and, and you know, they have a lot of back injuries and it's an extra full-time employee. It's another thing for a senior citizen to come sit across from me and say, uh, and bring a photo of her front yard, which is this slope, and say, did you think about what you're making me do when I got to drag this stupid trash can down to the curb? And so finding ways to disaggregate, to, to take the average, not just be looking at an average, but looking at the individual pieces that make up that average. We can only do that through encounter, through narrative. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the national political space is take that same kind of granular, grounded narrative approach to reality that I think every mayor experiences, especially when it's not one of the very biggest cities where you don't have a force field of staff and security around you when you go to the grocery and all, all you want to do is get some toilet paper and beer and get out of there, but somebody grabs you by the collar to talk to you about what you did to their trash bin, right? <laughs> and find ways to bring that reality and groundedness up to the national level. Because the other beauty of that involvement in politics is, is there's no alternative facts. If there's a hole in the road and somebody's mad about it, I can't do this Trumpian, like, it's the best road ever and there's no hole, right? Like, people will be like, no, it's right there. Fill it, right? And, and I think we need to find ways, and I think means are available to do it, especially through good political storytelling, um, to take that same humanity and bring it up to the highest levels of American politics. When did you start thinking that you wanted to run for president? So I did not think that I'd be doing this now. At this age, at this stage in life, from this day job, um, this is not something that I would have expected. Chaston sometimes reminds me um, <clears throat> that on our first date, when he was trying to figure out, like, do I really want to be dating a politician or not? Um, he asked me about the future. And the answer, which in fairness to me was honest at the time, was... You know, I'm up for re-election right now. If it goes well and I have a very successful second term, then I think I might get a shot at running for governor in 2020. Um, but what I saw change, what I saw happen is that the, the world needs the the American political structure and the office in particular needs something that that other people can't bring to it. It needs something, in my opinion, my biased opinion. Um, it needs voices from different kinds of communities than where most of our politicians come from. It needs voices with that kind of local on the ground experience, maybe more than it needs people who've been marinating in the US Congress for 10 or, or 30 years. Um, and it needs voices from a generation, the school shooting generation, the generation that's gonna be dealing with climate change, the generation that could be the first to be worse off economically than our parents if nothing changes. And I guess over the last year, two years, it dawned on me as we're all figuring out what to do with this presidency and how to make ourselves useful, that as improbable as it is, there's this funny alignment between what's needed by the office and, 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 and just maybe what I bring to the table. Doesn't South Bend still need you? South, South Bend is my home, but the whole premise of my campaign for mayor was that we needed a fresh start, that we needed change and originality and new eyes. And what a shame it would be if the, the, the guy who went around saying that 
is the last to realize after eight years of really changing a lot of things in the city, but having my own uh, weak spots and things that, that I will miss or won't pay attention to. What a shame it would be if I were the last one to realize it was time for a fresh start again. I want to get back to the, your political ambitions, but I want to return to, um, to South Bend. Hmm. When, you, when you look back at your successful tenure as mayor, um, I want to hear about something that didn't work. I want to hear about a failure. I want to hear about something that you would do over. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> um, well, there are some things that we just haven't gotten there yet. Um, because so much of your book talks about lived experience. I mean, yeah. that, that is, is a phrase that's throughout. And, and, and so you yeah. learn, one learns a lot from Oh, yeah. Players. And the number of times that I was about to let somebody have it because they were getting in the way of an initiative of mine. I mean, some things that sound very local and parochial, but were very important. Like, we want to put this road through a neighborhood, and I was absolutely convinced that, it, that this was the only way to do it. And that people who were standing in the way of it were resisting growth. And uh, I was wrong. Turned out I was wrong. And I was shown that I was wrong by the involvement of a lot of community activists um, until uh, we, we found a better way. Um, there is, um, uh, I mean, some of these are comical debates that arise almost literally out of parks and recreation. Um, there is a golf course that is like my Vietnam um, because I was, I was trying to um, get it off the city's books because I wasn't excited about uh, subsidizing golf in, in that particular property that was outside city limits. And I hadn't accounted for uh, why a lot of people relied on that golf course as a place to um, uh, to walk and, and to engage with that had nothing to do with golf. Um, there's some very great, I write about an episode that, that I wish I could, um, I, I believe I did the right thing, but I wish I could have done some things differently. That There was this very racially sensitive episode involving um, uh, recordings of uh, alleged uh, allegedly racist comments made by police officers. Um, and you ended up uh, firing the Yeah, I was basically uh, left with a choice between um, demoting uh, a popular African-American police chief um, or uh, essentially um, setting him up to be indicted. And it was just a no-win situation. Um, I think I did the right thing, but it bothers me to this day that our community had to go through that. Um, so, you, you look, th this is an exercise constantly in learning what could be done differently and metabolizing that and growing and, and getting smarter for the next time around. So that w when there are those goals that, that, that we haven't got to yet, when, when there are failures, every time somebody gets shot in our city, I think that's a failure of the entire American political apparatus from, from the mayor on up to, to the national level. Um, but I also feel like I'm fighting it with one hand tied behind my back because I can't do anything about gun policy in our city. Um, but I know that, that, that that's not an excuse, and, and I believe we've taken steps that are good ones that have contributed to a reduction in gang and gun violence in our city. Um, but all of this is unfinished business. That's the part that makes it hard to walk away um, um, from any job, I think, in public service, is the job, of course, is never done. Sorry, I'm looking through my notes because I had a question about, um, tr I'm trying to remember the timing. You, in the intro, you talked a little bit about um, Mike Pence being the governor at the time and pushing legislation, um, discriminatory legislation. Very. Uh, you hadn't come out yet. No. 
What was that like? Bad. Being, you, <laughs> you, you were worried at the time, you write about being worried about the economic impact it was gonna yeah. have, that it was gonna be much harder. Here you are, a, a, a mayor, very caring about your city, doing all these things, bring, take, getting it off of that Newsweek list. Yeah. Um, this legislation is uh, prompting boycotts and people right. are, are refusing to come and conventions and I think the N NCAA is, is uh, talking about. Yeah, NCAA, NASCAR stalling. even. You know you're in trouble when NASCAR is disappointed in you. Uh, <clears throat> right. And you hadn't come out yet. Yep. And I'm wondering, what was that like, enduring all of that? Well, like a lot of experiences, it, it was partly an exercise in compartmentalization. So, um, frankly, it wasn't my place to react to that as a gay person. It was my place to empower um, activists and policymakers to stand up and say, this is wrong. And as a mayor, it was making my job harder because it made our state a laughingstock and it tainted our city by association with the state. Um, but as a person, it upset me because you, you shouldn't have to be part of the LGBT community to recognize that we're all worse off if we live in a world where that kind of discrimination is okay. Um, but the uplifting thing was it turned out that there were enough people, Republicans and Democrats, who agreed that they compelled the governor to change course. And uh, I think in many ways it, it reflected well on our state for all the flaws we have in our home state that um, the, the pushback was so swift and so intense that in a matter of days he had to back off. Regarding your flirtation with running for president, where you write about um, doing a, a report when you were in high school on a fellow named Bernie Sanders. When you look at the slate, where, where are you? Where are you in line in terms of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren? Are you, are you, are you as left as you can be to appeal to this outspoken, um, younger, progressive demographic in the Democratic Party? I consider myself to be a strong progressive. Uh, at the same time, I also noticed that the, there's been this pressure to define yourself ideologically. Um, my values, I think I make them pretty clear and I, I make clear where I stand on policies. But I also think we're missing the extent to which a lot of people right now are not coming at this ideologically. The number of people in my state who had their choices narrowed down to either Sanders or Trump. The number of people in my county who just mathematically, there must be lots of them, who voted for Obama and Trump and Pence and me, tells you that there's some other currents going on here that are really important to understand, right? I mean, the President of the United States doesn't even have an ideology. He has a style, maybe, but he doesn't have an ideology, he doesn't care. Right? Um, which is part of why the U.S. doesn't have a foreign policy. Um, so, 
I think we need to, on one hand, I think this is a moment where more than ever we need to be clear about our values. You know, part of how I did earn respect and, and support across the aisle from independents and Republicans in our city was never by pretending to be more conservative than I am. It was by focusing on results and making it clear that my values motivated my actions. So if, even if people had different values, at least they knew that I came by these decisions honestly. And, and at the same time, I think we need to recognize that the, the, the habits, um, I think, uh, especially across the, the political professional class and across the press to some extent, of trying to fix us all in this kind of matrix of ideologies, is less and less suited to the reality we're living in, when we have to ask just fundamental structural questions. The, the Electoral College is a bad idea. Is it conservative or liberal to point that out? I don't know. I just think it's, I just think that the person who gets the most votes ought to be president. And, and um, to me, that's a commonsensical position that might be considered bold, um, but it's not coming from a right or left place. Uh, it's just coming from a certain view of what democracy means. And I think there are a whole bunch of issues that read that way. My last question uh, before we turn it to the audience is uh, a lot of us sit and read books and we listen to music. Um, I was deep into your book and then I got to the part where you're playing the piano and I, um, I asked Alexa, Alexa, play um, Rhapsody in Blue because uh, that is the piece that you were playing. It's, it's a great part in the book. Um, it started making me think you're a millennial, sort of what's on your iPhone, what's on your playlist. But then I realized the question I really want to know is, what's your campaign song? Ah. <laughs> well, I, we don't officially have one, but um, we're thinking of going with uh, Credence uh, Around the Bend. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at Chaston because uh, he's the one who pointed this out. It's, um, you know, I'm from the Bend, so that's pretty natural. I think it's got a nice intergenerational quality as a song. It's about you know a place up ahead, and I'm going right. I mean, it's uh, that's kind of how it's kind of how we think about this. And it's got a great guitar lick. <laughs> um, we'll take some questions from the audience. All right. Looks like we have a question right over here. Yes, I wanted to ask that since your campaign um, is really making a generational pitch, um, how, or I wanted to know what you think current politicians have been doing that's failing younger voters, failing to motivate them and get them out. Yeah, I, th I think um, <clears throat> a lot of decisions right now are being made as though the future is somebody else's problem. So part of what I'm trying to do is describe what, what America could or should look like in 2054, because that's the year that I get to the current age of the current president. Um, and I think when, when you, God willing, um, when you regard that, the state of the union in that year, not as a theoretical issue, um, but as your problem, then I think you reach different conclusions. I think you have a harder time embracing uh, tax cuts that, that would, for the wealthiest that will not pay for themselves and will create ballooning deficits that will later be used as an excuse to cut services. Uh, I think that you, uh, especially if you spent half your life with America at war, ask about whether we're thinking about the long term when we commit US troops to foreign interventions. Um, you know, today we're hearing about a peace plan that would get U.S. troops out of Afghanistan in five years. I left Afghanistan five years ago thinking I was one of the last troops to be there. 
And that was almost 15 years after we got started. Um, climate is an issue that we'll be dealing with for the rest of your life, and I think you simply cannot treat it as, a, you can't just hope it'll take care of itself if you're concerned about how life is gonna unfold for us all in the next few years. So there are some very concrete policy implications to an outlook that uh, regards the concerns of a younger generation um, as, as our own. And I fear that that perspective is not being taken on board by many of the people in power in Washington today. We have a question up here. Yep, hi. Uh, I wanted to ask, I saw in a recent interview you were questioned about packing the court if, yeah. if elected. Uh, obviously the Republicans have gone to very bold measures to uh, institute their sort of government, uh, what they did with Merrick Garland for instance. Right. Do you think that it's best to counter that with bold moves like packing the court or finding some sort of middle ground in there? So what I would say is the Democrats' the idea of fair play has really come back to bite us many times. And at the same time, we don't want to emulate what we're opposing, right? So one of the reasons that I think we need to look at Supreme Court reform, to me it's not about, um, it's not just about having a more progressive court. Um, I mean, certainly the, the decisions made by, as somebody whose marriage exists by the grace of a single vote on the Supreme Court, I do think about that a lot. But what I'm really interested in is how do we stop the slide of the court toward becoming a nakedly political institution, or at least being seen as such. And so, you know, one, one thing that's been put forward is let's just, um, as the Republicans basically did, they basically changed the number of justices from nine to eight for, for as long as they could. And so the, the answer that some on the left are proposing is like, well, let's make it 11. It's actually not in the Constitution, right, how many, how many justices there are, which is interesting. I think there are other solutions that might actually speak to that even better. One would be a 15-member court where you have five members appointed by Democrats, five by Republicans, and then five who can only be seated by unanimous agreement of the other 10. Um, it takes the politics out of it. There's other ways you could do it. You could have a rotation off the appellate bench. The point is we've got to do something so that every vacancy does not turn into this apocalyptic ideological battle because that harms the court and it harms the country. Oh, okay. I had a question over here. I see you. All right. I'm going I'm to come and get friendly. With you. All right. Well, first, I'd I'm just eager like to, to hear your say. question, but I do want to note we're hearing from a lot of guys, so hopefully we can... Get some balance there. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I'm a guy too. Well, I just I, want to make sure for the next question like we're mixing it up a bit. I'm standing beside someone who was uh, my favorite professor in college, uh, Florangela. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part. Say again. Florangela was one of my favorite professors in oh, college. Look at that. So, Brad. <laughs> um, I, but back to this you gave a great uh, talk on TED um, about how you came to realize that your, your community had this this um, awesome kind of natural resource underneath the ground, right? This um, fiber optic cables and, and how you took that and uh, made something of it. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you uh, came to realize that that was there. Yeah, thank you for asking that because not everybody's as excited about things like fiber infrastructure as I am. But uh, I think it's really important, right? So it's important intrinsically because part, part of what we did was we, um, it turns out the internet's a physical thing. And... Uh, 
you know, it, it, it consists of fiber links, and, and they had to put them somewhere, and where they put them was often on the old railway and highway right-of-ways uh, that, that ex were built up for industrial or other reasons. And so as we were figuring out our future as a city, part of what we realized was that we had great fiber because it followed these railway lines through the Midwest. We also had these power substations with nothing left to power because the factories had shut down. Uh, and we have cold weather, which can have its virtues. Because if you have cheap power, good fiber, and cold weather, you're a great place for data centers. Um, then we started working, the, the harder part was making sure that it was a fertile place for data analytics companies because you create a few jobs by hosting the machines, but you create the best jobs by, by having people work on the, on the data analytics. And we have businesses doing this now. The, the, the bigger, the theme of the, the talk that you mentioned and, and the thing I'm really trying to get across is that um, we do well when we take what we already have and we fashion it into a new kind of source of value. Um, it's not, a mayor's come under a lot of pressure to just make up you know, clusters or, or make up new ways of growing. And actually, a lot of it has to do with taking what you have and, and just making something new from it. And South Bend has a knack for that. Uh, but I think that's something that can be replicated across a lot of American communities. Um, but again, the, the first thing you have to do in order to get there is to acknowledge that that future you're trying to build is not as simple as just rewinding to something you used to have. We have a question in the middle. It's on. You can just talk into it. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm part of Moms Demand Action. Thank and, you. And uh, I just want to... <laughs> you spoke with frustration about not being able to impact gun policy as a mayor. Um, I'd like to hear what you would do as president to impact gun violence prevention policy. Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the measure that just passed the House uh, would be signed into law right away uh, if I were in charge. Thank you. And, you know, the background checks are one thing. Um, there, there are a lot of other things we need to do, interstate, uh, interstate trafficking, uh, stronger federal protections, asking where we draw the line uh, on assault weapons. I mean, the way I come at this is, uh, I believe all of those measures, by the way, are compatible with the Second Amendment, right? Somewhere in between a slingshot and a nuclear weapon, we have to draw a line that I think is consistent with the Second Amendment, because we've already all agreed you can't have a nuclear weapon, um, but allows people to uh, uh, have the, the, the rights that they believe, uh, that whatever rights are most important to them when it comes to protection and, and sporting and the rest of it. And I think we can totally do that. Um, the, the frustration, I think this points actually to a deeper issue, uh, which is it exposes the problem with our democracy. Because if background checks are something that 90% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans and the vast majority of gun owners can all agree that we ought to do, how is it that the Senate can't agree that we ought to do that? That's only possible if our democracy has become warped to where the center of gravity of the American public is not reflected by the center of gravity of the American Congress. And that's why I think we need to entertain structural reform. So we're talking about electoral college or redistricting or the way money comes into politics uh, or any of the other measures that have been talked about. Because a good measure of whether uh, our system works is that we should get to a place where it's never again possible to have 80 or 90% of Americans agree we ought to do something and have Washington incapable of delivering that. So thanks for your activism on that. We have a question on the upper left. Thanks. Hi, Mayor P. Uh, I'm from South Bend as well. So, All right. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and I went home last weekend, and uh, me and my mom had, mom had a conversation. Um, 
She's blaring Fox News. Of course, you can imagine where I'm at on that. How do we become decent again? Oh, what a great question. Um, <clears throat> this is so important because I worry that what's happening right now in our politics and the current president, who I obviously am very opposed to, I worry about the extent to which he can bring out the worst, not only in his supporter, supporters, but in his opponents. I'm worried about what's happening to us, too. Um, I see it in a kind of condescension that happens sometimes toward people from my part of the country. Um, and we need to, look, I'm not talking about winning over, if somebody votes the way they vote because they're a committed racist, I don't want their vote, I'll never get it, and it just is what it is. We just simply have to outvote them. But if somebody, as many people in my part of the country did, voted the way they did because they felt the system was letting them down, they wanted to burn the house down, and they viewed my party as basically saying the system is perfectly fine, which was not convincing because it is not true. You know, we have to find some human basis for connecting with people on the other side of that gulf. Um, this is only one country. I think about it a lot in terms of my experience in the military because there were people that I learned to trust my life to and vice versa with radically different political commitments um, and backgrounds, but who did not care. They did not care if I was going home to a you know, a uh, boyfriend or a girlfriend. They didn't care what country my father emigrated from. Um, they just wanted to know that I, I, they could trust me to guard or drive their convoy and get them to where they were going alive. We need to find means to build that same kind of trust among Americans. I think that is the promise of national service. I think that does start to naturally happen when our democracy is more democratic, when our economy is less unequal, but there also just has to be some acknowledgement of the role of grace and forgiveness in our politics. And that, uh, I'm sorry, but you're not a good or a bad person because of who you voted for. All of us are capable of doing good and bad things. And why leadership matters is that it can arouse the best in us and it can arouse the worst in us. And that, in my view, is what's at stake in 2020. So... We have time for just two more questions. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm going to take one here, and then maybe one from the overflow section up there, and then we'll, we'll just acknowledge the overflow section. That yes, has been hello, so, uh, overflow uh, section. Kind to be here, even though you can't yeah. see us. Thank you. So I know we could be here all night asking questions, um, and so you'll have an opportunity if you get your book signed to chat a little bit more. But uh, we've got two more questions. Here's one. Hi, um, I did my graduate degree at Notre Dame, so Great. I was there um, around the time that you were elected mayor. And I just wanted to share a little anecdote that I remember of you and then uh -oh. think about how that's, no, 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 it's good, it's good. Um, <laughs> in 2013, South Bend had its first, what we call the Pride Prom, uh, which is when, um, you know, the LGBT community got together and everybody that didn't get to have a prom, a bunch of adults showed up and had a great time and got, pretty drunk, and uh, Mayor Pete showed up in his suspenders with his shirt sleeves rolled up, serving drinks. He wasn't schmoozing, he wasn't showing up for pictures. He was, he was there to support the community, and this is before he even came out, and I think really the measure um, of a leader is what they do for people. Um, 
without being seen. Um, and so I just wanted you, if you could talk a little bit about how our current president is attacking the LGBT community and what you think could be done. Yeah. Um, first of all, I remember that event. That was a great one. So thanks, thanks for your hand in that. Um, look, the community's still under attack, right? I mean, on one hand, um, well, think of it this way. You know, bullies specialize in targeting vulnerable people. I can't think of somebody more vulnerable than a transgender kid in high school. High school is complicated and intimidating if you were transgender. High school is complicated and intimidating if you were not transgender, right? That's, that's how it is. And if you just got to go to the bathroom like everybody else. And the president of the United States is, and, and, and other politicians are basically giving ammunition to people who can't tell the difference between you and a predator. Um, that leads to real harm. Uh, members of the military. You know, the military is probably the largest employer of transgender people in the country. Um, if they're willing to put their lives on the line for this country, they have earned our support. The uh, lack of a federal equality act. That's not just this president, but that's something that Washington's got to do. Again, I think most Americans get it. We just haven't gotten there yet policy-wise so that you can't be fired for, for who you are or who you love. Um, and so, you know, I think the, what we're seeing from the president is just kind of cynical politics, but what we need to see from the country is a response. Um, so I'm under no illusions that we're where we need to be in terms of LGBTQ equality. That being said, you know, look at, look at how far we've come. As recently as the beginning of this decade, when I was getting involved in politics and when I was an ensign in the Navy Reserve, you know, there were certain things I knew to be true. One was that you could either be in the military or you could be out, but you could not be both. And another was that you could either be in elected politics in a place like Indiana, or you could be out, but you could not be both. And the idea that uh, I came out and uh, was reelected with 80% of the vote and sometimes do interviews in the context of presidential politics, sometimes with my husband at my side, or other interviews where we talk for 20 minutes about issues and it doesn't even come up. Tells you just, that's historic in its own way, right? It tells you just how far we've come and it gives me faith that we can go the distance. So we have one final question from the overflow section. Go for it. Hi. Hi. I hope you can see us all the way up here, but. Um, I can see you. Uh, uh, our representative in the House introduced Medicare for All type legislation today, and we're, yeah. Um, and I was wondering where you stand, what your thoughts are on that type of legislation, or meeting somewhere halfway. What are your thoughts? Great. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, I believe that this is the direction we need to move in. Uh, let me also say, and not having had, I'm, I'm excited that uh, the representative put that forward and I haven't had a chance to kind of go to school on, on the policy structure um, that she put forward. Um, let me say, I think anybody in the 2020 conversation who talks about things like Medicare for All has a responsibility to explain what it would actually take to get there. And the version of it that I think makes sense is um, you, you take some version of Medicare and you make it available as a sort of public option on the exchange. 
And if people like me are right, that this is going to be uh, not only more universal in its coverage, but more cost effective, uh, because if we get it right, there will be purchasing power and rate setting to make sure that we are doing something about the fact that right now, America spends more of its medical dollar on bureaucracy and less on patient care than almost any other advanced country. Um, and that this can help. If people like me are right about that, then it will beat out the corporate options more and more and become a very natural glide path. Uh, you could call it Medicare for all who want it on the first day. Um, but it becomes a glide path toward a single-payer environment, which I believe, if, if for no other reason than that most citizens of advanced countries enjoy this, and I don't know why Americans would settle for less, and our system has not proven to be better in terms of efficiency or outcomes, uh, I think it's a commonsensical position to do that. By the way, single-payer, which is characterized as a far-left position, it represents a compromise between the left position, which is nationalized healthcare, and the right position, the far right position, which would be to uh, just have total private sector, you're on your own. So let's stop calling this a fringe idea and start recognizing it as a compromise, a public payer but a private provider. Let me end just by, because I know we're wrapping up, by why I think this matters. Um, I think that people on our side of the aisle need to be, get back in, in the business of talking about freedom. And I think we've been served up a version of freedom where the only freedom that matters is freedom from. Freedom from government, freedom from regulation, freedom from taxes. And we've forgotten that there are a lot of positive freedoms, freedom to do things, that good policy can support, just as bad policy and bad government can, can diminish it. Uh, I just went through one of the tougher moments in my life. Uh, we lost my father to cancer recently. And uh, two things really got me through that moment. The first was my marriage, a husband who took care of my mom and took care of me, took care of dad uh, toward the end and, and just lifted us up as a family. But the second thing was that through that whole process, we only, were think we only had to think about what was medically right for him and for our family. We didn't have to think about money because of Medicare. We were more free to spend those last weeks and months uh, thinking about our family and thinking about how we loved each other and thinking about how to help each other through that time. Our freedom was enhanced because of a policy. And I want every American to enjoy that same kind of freedom. Thank you so much, Mayor Pete. Thank you so much, Florangela. That was wonderful. I wish we could uh, stay here all night and just hang out and talk, but unfortunately we can't. So those of you who are gonna get your book signed, I'm gonna invite you to come and line up outside that door down the far wall. Those of you who are heading out, you'll uh, exit through the left-hand door. Thank you all for coming. Thanks again to Mayor Pete and Florangela for being here tonight, and uh, have a wonderful evening. <laughs>